0: Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and EditorialIntelligence.com. Good morning, just while the last of you are getting your seats. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. It's enormously good to be here this morning at the Financial Times, with whom we do some of our events. We've just got back from our annual symposium to uh, Port Merion with the Financial Times amongst our partners, for which David Cameron recorded an address. He did not make any political predictions in his address to us, uh, not wanting to steal the thunder, doubtless, of Greg Hans, who's on the panel. It was interesting that the other evening I ran into John Sopel, who is chairing, and Sandy Walkington, who is going to be speaking to you, uh, at a very surreal 3D screening of Alice in Wonderland, in which my 3D glasses failed to work, so it was even more surreal. And I thought there there, there is a metaphor here for the current state of party politics. So I'm just going to say it's being filmed, it's being podcasted, it's a little late to remove yourself but do so if you are shy. Um, Turn off your mobile phones, please. And I'm going to hand you over to a man who is very much the face of political reporting for the BBC. John Sopel has spent many, many years interviewing the good and the great and the not-so-good and the not-so-great in politics. He presents the politics show, and he's going to be your guide this morning. John.
1: Uh, Thank you very much. Um, Actually, I was at the politics show the other Friday, and the BBC Parliament uh, channel was replaying coverage uh, of the 1974 election, the February 1974 election, which, of course, ended in a hung parliament and something of a constitutional crisis where apparently uh, the Queen's private secretary and the the head of the Home Civil Service ended up meeting in St James's Park to discuss what on earth they were going to do about uh, the crisis that was unfolding. There was also a fantastic moment um, with a reporter who was out on the street and who was going to interview... Uh, a bunch of women and his introduction line started with your mortal words here are a cheery bunch of housewives Um, (laughs) note to self in this election don't introduce people uh, like that but they also had on the program uh, the great David Butler uh, Professor David Butler from Nuffield College and I remember the most fantastic quote he had about experts and predictions and it is this, the experts predictions are right no more often than the average layperson. He's just wrong for more sophisticated reasons. (laughs) And so I think it will be with us uh, today that we were going to sit and make predictions about uh, what might happen, and you can probably get us back here in three months' time and judge how badly wrong uh, we got them all. And I think there are probably a few reasons why, from my perspective, why it seems that it's going to be very, very difficult to predict what happens. I remember as a young political correspondent in 1992 uh, covering that election and there was the the BBC exit poll. Uh, It said that Neil Kinnock was going to be the next Prime Minister and then we had the result of a smiling David Amos in Basildon and he had won and we knew that the exit poll was completely wrong and we knew on the basis of almost one result that actually it was going to be John Major who was going to be Prime Minister. There is a sort of subtext to that story is that the BBC took a very long time uh, to come to terms with the fact that its exit poll might be wrong and carried on predicting uh, that Neil Kinnock was going to be Prime Minister with an ever-dwindling majority. And it looked like there was something in the BBC's DNA that couldn't face admitting that there might actually be another Tory government, but we'll leave that to one side. Um, But I don't think it's going to be like that this time round because I don't think we're going to get uniform swings. I think you could possibly see in Scotland Labour majorities increasing. I think you could see the Tories' targeted seats that Lord Ashcroft has uh, assisted with his uh, non-DOM money um, uh, doing – I heard an intake of breath there – doing – doing very well in those sort of places. Uh, you could see that there may be seats uh, which have been caught up in the expenses scandal, where there's going to be a hugely differential swing than you might see in the rest of the country, where the local voters feel that whoever, whichever MP has behaved badly, and therefore they need to be uh, got rid of so i 've now set the groundwork the ground on why I think it 's going to be very, very hard uh, to make sensible predictions and then i 'm going to ask the panel to come up with sensible predictions um, so first of all, let me introduce uh, greg hans uh, m p because he'm he, going to ask you i 'm going to ask them each to speak for five minutes i 'm going to sit here with my watch i 'm going to police it and uh, and then we 'll interrogate them a bit and open it up as well um, so uh, Greg, if all goes well. Uh, in a few weeks' time, you'll be walking into the Treasury. Is that right?
2: Uh, well, at the moment, I'm the Shadow Economic Secretary. Um, it'll obviously be up to David Cameron and uh, George Osborne to decide um, who should be I the actual ministers. That. But, uh, but I I am, I'm confident of being elected in Chelsea and Fulham in my constituency. At yes. The very
1: least. Yeah, I don't think that you've got too many uh, worries there. Uh, um, John Hutton uh, was Secretary of State for Business, Enterprise and Regulatory Reform. When that was formed, he became uh, Defence Secretary and uh, who was Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, and I think think there was a good deal of surprise when it was announced that uh, John Hutton, where is he? Uh, There he is, uh, was uh, standing down um, from government, and maybe surprised as well that you were standing down for the uh, reasons that you stated that you were standing down, rather than out of any political difference, because uh, he did, and we now can say this because he's confirmed it, uh, did famously fill Nick Robinson's uh, notebook uh, with a rather choice quote, on what he saw as the relative qualities of uh, Gordon Brown uh, when he was taking over as Prime Minister in 2007. Uh, He will be a something disaster. I'm just trying to remember the word. It begins with F. Yeah, I'm not going to say it. Uh, Anyway, so... uh, John Hutton, I'm delighted, is here as well on the panel. Uh, Suzanne Moore, fabulous uh, columnist, the Guardian, the Independent, now at the Mail on Sunday, absolute uh, must-read. I'm not sure uh, that impressed by any of the uh, three main parties. Uh, George Parker is on home turf here as the uh, political editor for the FT uh, since September 2007. Um, George and I have known each other a very long time. We once had a very – I think it was – was it to Washington? the 50th anniversary of NATO. We had to spend an awful lot of time sitting around, waiting for things to happen. And kind of, you you know, it's one of those... You're on the road, you chat, you travel, you get to know bits about each other. And and I discovered the most extraordinary thing about George Parker. (laughs) If you ask him, if you say to him the A-34 he will tell you what other roads intersect with any road in Britain. No, I promise you, I am not kidding. M62. Uh,
3: Liverpool to Hull. Yeah, A34 Southampton to Manchester, by the way. It's one of the more interesting A roads in uh, southern England. (laughs) I, I promise you promise my discourse could only possibly be more interesting than that bit of information.
1: Do, do, do you see what I mean? Okay? So that's what happens when you travel on the road as a bunch of journalists travelling with the Prime Minister as we were uh, on that occasion. Uh, Sandy Walkington... Uh, studied law at Cambridge, he is going to be the Liberal Democrats uh, candidate in St Albans at this election, and I'll go back to my introduction, which I kind of talked about, how I think you're going to see uh, very big differential swings. Now, I think, although the Liberal Democrats came third, if I'm right in my memory, in St Albans... uh, Not with me. Yeah, not with you. At the last election, they weren't that that far behind. You've got... um, You have the Tory candidate who has got into all sorts of trouble and has faced deselection battles. You've got Labour uh, who are, uh, obviously, it will be unlikely that they're going to be piling on the votes in St Albans. And so you have Sandy Walkington, who could well be uh, the next MP for St Albans, which would be quite a spectacular Liberal Democrat game. Anyway, enough from me. Uh, Let us get on uh, with the stars of today. Uh, First of all, Greg Hans and your predictions.
2: Right. Um, Thank you, John. Do you want me to go stay here? or Stay here. Okay, right. Uh, well, first of all, um, can I just say it's a, a great pleasure to be here um, um, today. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing from uh, John Hutton in particular because I, I think he's actually probably made, uh, as John said, the best and most accurate uh, political prediction in recent years in his description uh, of how Gordon Brown would ultimately uh, uh, carry out the role of uh, Prime Minister. Um, but uh, in terms of the, an answer to your question, um, I can answer it in two parts. Is it the end of an era and then I'm going to talk about uh, my political predictions. And yes, I think it will be um, the end of an era in UK domestic politics, and it's possibly already the end of an era for uh, the UK economy. Uh, at least in terms of how we've gotten used to how the UK economy is constructed uh, and has performed over the last 30 years. Um, But keeping it in perspective, I think we are in danger of perhaps being a little bit too insular. Uh, I don't think this is going to be an end of an era in the same sense that, say, 1989 uh, with the fall of the Berlin Wall or 9-11 in 2001. I think uh, it might be the end of a domestic uh, political and economic era. Um, In terms of my predictions, uh, my first prediction in terms of the general election, which is mainly what I'm going to focus on, is that the Conservatives will win the general election uh, and we will win it well. Um, I think the economic disaster uh, can be laid in very significant part at Labour's door, Um, the size of the budget deficit going into the recession in particular and their system of banking regulation. Uh, I think uh, people will remember that and judge uh, the current government uh, accordingly. And I think when the British people look at really what the choice is, and the choice is going to be between uh, another five years of Gordon Brown. And bearing in mind, I don't think they particularly enjoyed the first three years of Gordon Brown. Uh, I think the idea of another five years, I think they will find uh, very off-putting, versus change under David Cameron and the Conservatives. I think that will be a very potent choice uh, when people go into the ballot box, or indeed if they vote by post. Uh, when it comes down to it. And I think that will actually be reinforced in voters' minds uh, by the debates, which I'm going to talk about uh, in a little bit of time as well. I think the debates will actually be... A number of people are saying, why have the Conservatives agreed to the debates when they're ahead? And I think actually it's a chance to showcase that choice uh, between David Cameron and Gordon Brown. Now, that's not just a feeling. I think there's very strong empirical evidence in the opinion polls uh, in terms of the marginal polling uh, and the size of the conservative lead uh, in those marginals that despite some recent tightening in the polls, uh, we are ahead. And I think uh, to use that uh, law of political polling, the most accurate poll is always the one that has Labour with the lowest share, and I'm expecting that to continue to be the case (laughs) through this election. Um, And I think actually the tightening of the polls now will be useful um, for David Cameron and the Conservatives uh, in future years. If anybody were to say, well, actually, Gordon Brown, was ba- Gordon Brown and Labour were bound to lose the 2010 election and you, David Cameron, had served up on a plate, you couldn't do anything else but win, then my advice would be that David should hold up that copy of the Sunday Times Uh, From three days ago, Brown set for Commons majority and say, actually, that's not what people said at the time. So I think, actually, that will strengthen David Cameron's uh, position in future years uh, as uh, Prime Minister. I do think the debates will change the face of the campaign. Um, They're already being quite hyped up, I think, with good reason. Um, there may actually end up being a little bit too much hype uh, for the debates. I think David Cameron will perform uh, very well in the debates uh, against uh, both of the other leaders. Um, and when you look at the leaders' polling differentials, um, David Cameron's the only one who has got a positive rating of more than 50%. Uh, Brown is on 36, Clegg on 42, and a massive 58% think that Brown is doing a bad job as prime minister. My third prediction is that the turnout will be the highest since 1992. Again, there's strong empirical evidence that turnout is closely correlated to the perceived closeness of the race. So all of these other reasons that Labour politicians in particular talk about the low turnout in recent years, it's very, very closely linked, I think, to the closeness uh, of the race, and that's been the case uh, for 30 years or so. I think the date will almost certainly be the 6th of May, which is uh, John's birthday. Uh, I think I'm reading on his Wikipedia entry, so he will have the chance to celebrate on that day, the last day of Gordon Brown as Prime Minister uh, of this country. Um, I think there is still chance of an April date, but logically, I think if there were to be an April date, the Prime Minister would have announced it in the last couple of days. And finally, in terms of the course of the campaign, um, I think we will see some um, pretty desperate stuff. Um, I think the, uh, the McBride-style smears... Uh, will re-emerge. I think we will see some massive distortions of what the Conservatives are pledging. I expect we will see all kinds of numbers uh, attached to the words Tory cuts, and then people, Labour politicians, hoping that it gains uh, some traction. And certainly in my local area, in Hammersmith, Fulham, we are, if you like, already seeing this, uh, with Labour leaflets going around saying the Tories are going to demolish your home, and we've actually calculated that locally, Labour politicians have added up more in-council cuts than the entire council budget. And I know John will know that well because he is also a resident of Hammersmith of Fulham and has actually done very well out of a well-managed, a well-run council <laughs> with council tax reductions. <laughs> so in the longer term, very briefly, I think it will be a difficult time for the country uh, coming up ahead, uh, but I do believe that getting it sorted out, there's this popular idea um, that uh, uh, whatever the conservatives do will be deeply unpopular. I take the opposite view. Uh, I think getting the country's problems sorted out under David Cameron, George Osborne and the Conservatives will be popular. Um, I guess the bigger question will be how long that popularity lasts. Will it go beyond a few years, or will it be longer term? I think it's very difficult for us to answer today. Parliament will clearly change radically. Um, it'll, be much, it'll be certainly much younger. There's 139 voluntary retirements, 46 Labour and Liberal Democrats quitting in marginal seats in particular. I think the new intake of MPs across actually probably all three parties. Uh, will be um, uh, very uh, impressive. Um, in particular, I met a number of conservative candidates um, who are incredible. I mean, people focus on, on uh, the number of uh, women candidates, the number of ethnic minority candidates, uh, uh, sexual orientation and so on. But if you actually look at their business careers and the number of people with further degrees, there's some really, really impressive people there amongst um, the conservative candidates. The only final thing I say, I'm still, um, despite uh, uh, kicking off with, I guess, a message of doom and gloom, I'm still very optimistic for our country. Uh, As you can see from my CV, I've got a very international background, I've got relatives uh, all over the world, and I still see the UK as being a a destination of choice uh, for people, and people still look uh, for the UK, and I think we could turn around uh, Britain in the coming years under a Conservative government, under David Cameron. Thank you.
1: Greg, thank you very much indeed. John Hutton, to whom more than one of those remarks was addressed.
4: Well, I'm going to start by agreeing with what uh, our chairman, John Sopel, has said today. It's always good to agree with the chairman at the beginning.
1: Trying to ingratiate yourself. Uh, Yes, absolutely, (laughs) yes.
4: Uh, Look, it is going to be quite difficult uh, to to make accurate predictions. I mean, I've been involved in every general election since 1983, and I I must say I I find this one really quite a difficult one to call, and I'm going to explain, I I hope, why in in a minute or so. But what I thought I would usefully do, John, is, is start by saying what I think the election is not going to be about. It's definitely not going to be about whether Gordon Brown is or isn't in touch with his feminine side. It's definitely not going to be about whether he has, on occasions, grabbed people by the lapels or whether he swears a lot in private. It's definitely not going to be about those things. That makes no difference to the British public whatsoever. What the election is going to be fundamentally about is the economy. And how we deal with the, the recovery, how we strengthen the recovery, how we deal with the question of the deficit, and what the future government, a future government, will do about taxes. Because we've got to keep taxes as low as possible, uh, commensurate with the, the, state, the current state of the economy. That's what the election is going to be about. Uh, and wound into all of those things, there is fundamentally the issue of, of leadership who, who is going to make the right decisions? Who is going to make the right calls about the next five years? That's what I think the election is going to be about. So it's not really going to be about some of those personal things that have featured in the press recently and conservatives get very excited about. Definitely not going to be about that. Uh, It's about leadership. It's about the economy. I don't think either the election is really going to be won or lost on this issue or theme of what's called a broken society. I I know the conservatives want to make that a big issue. I really don't think that's going to be a big issue because it doesn't really resonate. Yes, people are worried about crime. They're worried about tidiness of the local communities, all sorts of things. But people in this country don't really believe, I think, that our society is broken. I mean, I've had the good fortune of being a minister for a long time, and part of the job is to go around the country, and you see what's going on in communities up and down Britain. It's not a broken society. You know, there's an army of volunteers of all ages who are out there day in, day out, raising money for their communities, doing good deeds. We have a very strong society in Britain. Yes, it's under challenge from drugs and crime and all sorts of things, but our society is not broken. So I'm sure the Conservatives will want to run with that argument. That's not going to really be a decisive argument. It's going to be on the margins, and I don't think it'll, it'll, it'll get through any substantial scrutiny in a campaign. So I think the issue is the economy. Uh, first and foremost, front and centre, who can best steer the right course for Britain over the next five years? I would say I don't want to do Yabu politics today. I'm fortunately leaving that behind. Uh, I think on every significant issue in the last 18 months or so, Mr Cameron has made the wrong judgment call about the recession, uh, and I think uh, he is the least qualified person to say that he is best able to steer the right course for Britain over the next five years. That I think is going to be right at the heart of this campaign. I think there's a consensus emerging here and abroad that the timing of any fiscal tightening and there has to be public spending cuts sooner rather than later. I think everyone accepts that. The judgment about when you start that has got to be dictated first and foremost by the strength of the recovery, not by any sort of political ideology, weird, happy, clappy stuff about we've got to shrink the size of the state. The state is bad. Let's transfer state responsibilities to the private or the third sector. I'm very much in favor of a growing role for the private sector and the third sector in the delivery of public services. People here, I'm sure, will know that. But I think when it comes to the fundamental issue about when we do the fiscal retightening, that's got to be steered by our understanding of the strength and resilience of the recovery and nothing else. If we just take one very little sort of glimmer into this argument, I mean, if the Conservatives are going to, let's say, even shave a year of the four-year target that the government has set, the Chancellor has set, for halving the deficit. That is going to generate the need for about £30 billion worth of additional spending cuts. Now, we need to know where they are going to fall, because I don't think, this is my own personal view, I, I don't think what the country is asking for is a return to, to Thatcherism. It's not arguing. They don't want to see the old Conservative Party somehow resurrected The Tories have only prospered in the last few years under Mr. Cameron's leadership by moving on to the center ground that new labor has helped to create. If they move away from that center ground, I think they will pay a very high electoral price. Now, I know there are lots of Tory Turks, young radicals, who think actually they could consolidate their opinion poll lead if they become more radical, more blue water. I think precisely the opposite. If they were to do that at this this timing of the campaign, they would pay a very high electoral price. Because the question that a lot of people are asking themselves about the Conservatives is, have they changed? That's, I think, one of the intriguing issues in the campaign, and that is what's going to come out, because I think the Tory head and the Tory heart are in two totally different places. I think the Tory head knows they've got to be centre ground, because that's where they've prospered. Tory heart is in a different place. A Tory heart is much more full-blooded Thatcherism. And I really don't think there's any appetite or mood in the country for a return to that type of right-wing politics. I, I just don't see it anywhere. And it's not clear to me that the Tories have got that resolved, and I think that's going to come through in the campaign very strongly as well. So the Tories have changed the brand. I think that's a, a good thing. The brand was a really pretty bad one. Uh, but I think in the process of rebranding, they've, they've lost definition altogether. So is this a 1979 or a 1997 moment? No, I don't think so. Uh, I think it's more like a 1992 Okay. Moment. John, thank you very much indeed.
5: Suzanne? Is it it me? It's you. Okay. Um, Well, journalists aren't in the business of prediction, really. I mean, we're in the business of lowering the tone and lowering (laughs) expectations. Um, I just want to talk about the polls. Um, Partly because of the 24-hour news cycle, it seems to me that polls are being taken far too seriously at the moment. A poll in itself is not a news story, but is now reported as such. Uh, It's then hyped, rebutted, um, and then... uh, commentators come in and and tell us that this is reality. Uh, I don't think it is reality. One of the reasons that this election campaign seems to have been going on for so long is that it's entirely inward-looking. There is a pact between media and politicians that is now now ensuring a certain narrative. But I have to say, I think this is a parallel narrative that runs alongside everyday life and has not got anything to do with it. Uh, There's currently a conversation, this is probably one of them, between media, politicians and pollsters but the public aren't really in this conversation. They're still locked out of it and very passive. I don't think um, this is reality. I think the public are engaged, but they're not engaged um, in the way that politicians keep sort of referring to. Um, If you watch anything like Question Time or anything like that regularly, the audience is now outperforming the panel. Politicians look extremely tired. Nobody really knows what's going on, um, and that's why I think... Uh, particularly political journalists are all over the shop at the moment because the stories that they tell us are going to make an impact on the polls are not making an impact on the polls whether it's Brown's bullying or Michael Ashcroft's um, uh, money or whether um, you know this great discussion on are we going to have a TV debate or not this is the media talking to the media this is politicians talking to the media this is not anybody talking to people about the issues that concern them and nobody is really addressing the fundamental thing which is a collective desire to punish the entire political class whichever party they're in so these stories are exciting people in the bubble but I don't think they're exciting people outside the bubble this desire for change is actually um, a howl of outrage about MPs expenses and so on no one's talked no politicians are still not I mean they don't want to talk about that in this election Um, (coughs) excuse me So we we are basically sick of them, Um, and Labour and Tory turnout will uh, will be key in this election. A third of voters between eighteen to twenty five are not registered to vote yet, so I'm not sure about um, whether we're going to have this extremely high turnout. No one's going to be able to talk about mandates with the kinds of figures uh, that have been floated at the moment. Um, This may benefit the Lib Dems and the rise of the independents. I hope it does, Uh, but at the moment the circus is continuing. So we have this current story, and I think it is a story, is that this wobble in the polls suddenly means that we all love Gordon Brown again, that they're back in with a fighting chance. Uh, I'm not sure it does, but it's certainly true. Um, John said that no one is going to be voting about, you know, whether Gordon Brown is a bully or not, but in the absence of divergent uh, ideologies, and when we're really only having an argument about who is going to manage cuts the best, what will happen is that uh, personality does is an issue. and I mean, we, we see that more and more. Um, that's why I think the polls that we are looking at, which reflect voter intention over the wrong polls, I mean, the polls that are always the most accurate are the polls on leader approval, if we're going to talk about polls. I wouldn't, so I wouldn't jump on the uh, voting intention polls. The story at the moment uh, with um, Labour winning—I don't believe. I would probably, if I had to make a prediction, say it would be the Tories. Um, I understand that um, C- Cameron, half Darts, half Darcy, as I like to call him, has not um, sealed the deal, <laughs> but uh, nor has Brown, as is sort of now you know pictured as a sort of shoving kind of juggernaut figure that just kind of goes on regardless. Um, so I—I I don't. Yeah, I don't know who's going to win. I don't think anybody does. And as John said, it will be the excuse me the economy that matters. And again, I think this is a very difficult one to call because this recession has affected people who don't have jobs. It hasn't really hit people who do have jobs. So it's very patchy how this sort of impacts on people's uh, experience. But what I really resent at the moment is the stranglehold the political class, and I include the media, have on persuading us that things are a certain way. One of, the, one of these... Uh, the things that we keep being told is that we cannot have a hung parliament. A hung parliament would be a disaster. The city is telling us that if we have a hung parliament, Sterling will crash. Politicians are telling us if we have a hung parliament, um, nothing will be done. Parliament can't, cannot function. It didn't function in 1974. But surely we're in a different time and space. We may have a hung parliament. Are we going to just um, call it a day? I think if you talk to people in the street they don't see a hung parliament in the same way politicians do they see it as a kind of cross-party government and maybe there is a desire for that and that's that i would say would be the end of an era it would be the end of the two-party system i don't see it as such a bad thing it would be the end of um the era of new labor and it would be we're also seeing the end of i think old-style political campaigning and i hope the end of just taking the public for granted. The much vaunted social media—I don't think we've seen much impact of, from that yet, except as uh, to disrupt. We haven't seen much initiative from social media. I mean, uh, we, we had a lot of talk of, of viral campaigning and so on. We see it only when they're able to disrupt um, immediately online. Cameron puts a poster up, and five minutes later, three minutes later, actually, you know, somebody has done a very clever, witty thing with graffiti. Um, I would like, um, so I would like to sort of. Predict that there would be a hung parliament and that it can function, and that this may be what people are inadvertently voting for. I think the idea that after uh, 10, 12 years of this government with a huge majority, we may actually want, so there may, may have a kind of unconscious desire not to have these huge majorities. We've seen after Chilcot and so on that what we've really had for the last um, era is. Uh, government without cabinet, we've had a disenfranchised civil service the idea that the Tories are offering a change from that is not true, they're simply replicating the system with a cabal at the top that's not representative of its grassroots it will be a fundamental problem for the Tories so I suppose what I'm saying is um, instead of saying if it's not broke, uh, let's not fix it, it is broken and maybe by not fixing it and by having a hung parliament um, then we would have a new era
1: Okay, Suzanne, so thank you very much indeed. Um, right, George, uh, I'll just pick up with uh, Suzanne's
3: great political journalists are
1: all over the place at the moment. George Parker.
3: <laughs> yes, well, uh, uh, thank you very much, John, and thanks um, for the <laughs> probably agree with some of that. And welcome to the Financial, Financial Times uh, this morning, and uh, just going back to John's generous description of me as some kind of human sat uh, system <laughs> at the start, I'd probably agree that the the course of this general election is probably going to be as unpredictable as the route of the A361 as it wends its way from <laughs> Ilfrig in, in North Devon through the Midlands and then finds, up, finds itself at the metaphorical electoral finishing post in Daventry, uh, somewhere up in the East Midlands. Um, and it's true that we, we really, um, political journalists are all over the place, we, we think stories are important and they don't turn out to be at all um, in terms of the public. Um, if you just look at what's happened since the beginning of the year, there was a coup against, or attempted coup at least, against Gordon Brown's leadership. We um, read all about the fact he bullies his staff. The Chancellor of the Exchequer says he's been the victim of the forces of hell unleashed from number 10. And Gordon Brown's poll rating keeps rising and uh, Conservative Party's poll rating keeps dropping. So it's going to be a very difficult election to call. Um, but I just think this week's quite an important week. I was down in Brighton. Uh, and by the way, I'll come to my prediction at the end. I'm not trying to duck the, uh, the purpose of this. I will make a prediction at the end. I was down in Brighton at the weekend at the Conservative Party's Spring Conference. And it seemed to me, talking to people down there, that was, it was a moment, really, where within the top echelons of the Conservative Party, and in David Cameron's mind as well, it crystallised the idea that this is going to be an extremely difficult election for the Conservative Party to win. But it's still an election which the Labour Party and Gordon Brown can very easily lose. Uh, and I'll try and explain what I mean by that. The maths are quite well known. Uh, And they support this theory, obviously, that for the Labour Party to lose a total majority in the Commons, the swing against Labour has to be around about 1.5%, something like that. For David Cameron to win an absolute majority in the Commons, he has to have a swing to the Tories of about 7%. Um, And we all know this means winning the largest number of seats or gaining the largest number of seats since the 1931 general election, about 120 or so. So the maths are extremely difficult. Now, when I said Cameron's decided that it's difficult to win this election... I'm not saying they haven't tried to make a positive case. I'm talking here about the idea that the Conservative Party can attract people and make people vote positively for the party. And they've been trying flat out since the beginning of the year. Um, You saw at the launch of uh, the Tory election campaign, effectively at the beginning of January, the postering over every flat surface in the land, uh, a picture of David Cameron promising to cut the deficit but not the NHS, and the promise that policies would be rolled out week after week and to give people a better idea of what the Conservative Party was about, and give people a positive reason to vote for the Conservatives. And it simply hasn't worked. Um, Of course, there have been mistakes along the way. You know, David Cameron unable to explain his married couple's tax plans, the misplacing of a decimal point to make it sound like half the population of the North had uh, teenage mothers. Um, uh, But the fact is, I think what it exposed really, and David Cameron I think would acknowledge this, is the cynicism about... Politicians and their ability to deliver. Um, and I was down with David Cameron in, in Eastleigh the other day and grabbed him just for a chat about this. And I, and I think David Cameron would privately admit that you know, he's finding it very difficult to excite people about the Conservative Party and to enthuse people about him. There's no doubt he's decontaminated the Conservative brand. That's for certain. But David Cameron would say it's a it's much wider malaise. It's not just about the expenses scandal, which has made people very cynical about politicians generally. He also says that Tony Blair really... Uh, sort of queered the pitch for, for many politicians in this country that he was elected on this tide of enthusiasm back in ninety seven and he was unable to deliver what people hoped for and I think we're seeing another example of that over in America at the moment with President Obama probably to an even greater extent um, so people are cynical about politicians generally, they're confused about the message the Conservative Party are putting out as well because when Cameron was elected as leader in 2005 we were in different circumstances um, And as a result, policies which were framed for good times have had to be skewed around for the politics of the difficult times. And I think the public, and the polling shows this, don't really understand what the Conservative Party is all about. I mean, to give you an example, probably say the defining policy of the first year of David Cameron's uh, year in office was the environment, obviously going off to the Arctic ice sheet, posing with huskies. But the environment doesn't feature in the Conservative Party's six top priorities for the coming general election. Um, what's another policy of the early Cameron years hugging hoodies you know, shorthand obviously um, but a more socially tolerant approach to crime and to the causes of crime and more recently we've been hearing them talk about uh, locking people up in prison ships where they have no chance of rehabilitation or indeed exercise and most obviously John talked about the economy um, the fact the policies framed in the good times let the, let the sunshine come in as David Cameron said uh, turned into talk about an age of austerity And I think also the other problem is, apart from a confusing message, I think the Conservative Party has learned in the first two months that David Cameron, like all other politicians, is probably less popular than he might have imagined or Tory strategists might have imagined. And Suzanne mentioned the defacing or the Internet doctoring of the famous Cameron poster and the the fact that that poster was deemed to be a total disaster. So if the Conservatives have a problem in enthusing voters to vote Tory, I think they're onto a winner when latching onto the fact that Gordon Brown and the Labour Party remain deeply unpopular. Um, And this is what I mean about the difference between winning and losing the election. I think that what the Conservative Party have decided to do this week and David Cameron said that maybe he gave the Labour Party too much of a free ride earlier on by concentrating on his own policies. He's turning the spotlight on to Gordon Brown and the Labour Party's policies and do we really want to wake up on May the 7th we assume with another five years of a Labour government, another five years of Gordon Brown's baleful, as the Conservatives would see it, presence in number 10. And I think that might be enough. You know, The change argument that presented the voters with a choice between Cameron and Brown might be enough. And I think you know, this, this is really the Tory secret weapon. It will be focused relentlessly. You could call it negative campaigning. You could call it drawing attention to the shortcomings of a Labour government. It might be enough, but it might not be. And I remember the 1992 election. We all remember the 1992 election when we couldn't conceive We wake up on that April morning with another five years of that dreary John Major in number 10. And we did. Um, And no one could quite understand it. So I don't think it's enough. And to make my prediction, to conclude, I'm going to go along with Suzanne. This is partly wishful thinking because for journalists, a hung parliament would be a fantastic uh, opportunity um, and an amazing story. My prediction is that um, we'll have a hung parliament. uh, And my prediction is that the Conservative Party will have... Uh, by far the largest number of seats, somewhere some close to an overall majority. And I'd also agree with Suzanne, incidentally, can I just finish on this point, John, that a hung parliament for David Cameron is not the disaster that some people in the Conservative Party seem to imagine, in my view. If you're, if you're David Cameron with a majority of 10, a Commons majority of 10, you have to do it all yourself. You, If it goes wrong, it's all your own fault. You're highly dependent on a small number of backbenches, and John Major can tell you how difficult this is to behave themselves, especially when a Tory government's slashing the bypass or closing the maternity wing in their hospital. A hung parliament where David Cameron is forced to make an agreement of some kind with the smaller parties, including the Liberal Democrats, will ensure a broader basis of support for the very difficult challenges that they would have to take, and I think would lead, actually, in a paradoxical way to a more stable government over the long term. Anyway, that's my prediction. Fantastic. Thank you, George.
6: Uh, Sandy. Uh, thank you, John. Um, it's very good to be with young Turks like um, Greg Hans and John Hutton. Um, I say that because I was in the February 1974 election. It's not a question of watching old, shaky newsreels. Um, I was at Cambridge. Um, the Liberals had not stood a candidate in Cambridge in 1970, In 1974, the campaign was run by students out of a room in Peterhouse, and we went from zero to 26%. And of course, Cambridge was won by the Liberal Democrats at the last election in 2005. You get there by degrees. Um, But I remember on a Saturday morning after polling day, an emergency meeting of the Cambridge Liberal Association, um, A nation trembled. Um, and at the end of that meeting, I was sent to Cambridge Post Office, this is a different era, to send a telegram to Jeremy Thorpe to explain why he should on no account go into a shared government with Ted Heath, who, of course, was still skulking in Number 10, wondering whether he could somehow magic up the numbers to stay in power. So plus ça change you'll see shows, although I think it'll be Facebook and Twitter rather than telegrams this time Is a strange change now because I'm a candidate I'm banging on doors and I do it all the time virtually every day and I can just say that from my experience Labour is a love that dare not speak its name I mean you cannot find Labour supporters they're there but nobody admits it and a Conservative vote is astonishingly soft It is very, very soft. There is no enthusiasm. And if you're looking at real results, we just had a by-election, council by-election in St Albans. Labour put out seven two-colour leaflets. Astonishing, seven two-colour leaflets. By the way, only one mentioned their parliamentary candidate. Quite astonishing, just before the election. And their vote went down by 10%, and they hung on by a fraction to the seat they were defending. The Conservative vote, they put up a local councillor, well-known in the area his vote went down 20%. I mean, something is happening. It is happening. Now, I didn't want to talk about the coming election campaign. I thought that was boring and actually quite difficult. I think the interesting thing is the predictions about what happens afterwards. And the reality is, all of us are simply being economical with the truth about the economy. I totally agree with the other speakers. It's about the economy, stupid. But no one's telling the truth in any political party I mean, we simply, because if we were totally honest, everybody would run a mile. And we have these airy, quote, efficiency savings. And everybody here in business knows efficiency savings are just, you know, words. words. And we all know that whoever is the new chancellor is going to go into the treasury, sort of kick a football around or play play some cards, and then come out with a face like the Pope at a Stonewall meeting and say, you know, (laughs) I'd say I have opened the books. It is far worse than I ever imagined, and all bets are off. You know, and we are facing a really, really hard slog. And when I was young, you could inflate your way out of debt, and that's what we did. And under the new rules, we can't. So we're not going to be able to inflate our way out. It's going to be pain and grief. And someone on the doorstep said to me, an old age pensioner couple, well what are you promising for us? And I just said blood, sweat, toil, and tears. And if I said differently, I'd be lying. And so we're going to have this law. And the question is going to be, after May the 6th, what about social cohesion? How do we hold the country together? Just look at what's happening in the pig um, countries near Portugal, Ireland, Greece, Spain. Look at the social stresses that are happening there. So for a start, the political class, us up here, are going to have to lead and lead from the front. And that's why I agree about cutting the number of MPs. I, I would um, put that with, obviously, voting and constitutional reform, not just cutting the number. We have to show we're taking cuts, cuts and allowances, cutting whole departments. We would just abolish um, John's former department of business enterprise and regulation reform, a bit of industrial welfare state. Because unless... The political class is shown to be making cuts where it hurts. How can we actually ask other people to take that? Now, there's an old history of people stealing liberal or Lib Dem ideas. And that's fine. You know, that's the way the world works. One thinks about 1992 and nobody of the other parties mentioned independence for the Bank of England. It had been liberal policy, Lib Dem policy, both in 92 and 97, Gordon Brown came in and did it. Perhaps not quite right, but he did it. It wasn't in his manifesto. It wasn't in the Tory manifesto. So what would I be looking for? Well, first of all, something to address social cohesion, but also something to address something which has barely been mentioned on the platform today, climate change. And we know that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is saying, unless we peak um, carbon emissions by 2020, we are in deep trouble. And Jonathan Porritt is about to publish this report about what he calls the last parliament. This is going to be the last parliament where we can make the decisions that actually shift this country and help set a lead for the rest of the world. And I would like to hope, going back to the benefits of a hung parliament or a balanced parliament, is that actually we can get a shared vision of the step change that needs to be done. Geoffrey Howe did that dramatic change, rightly or wrongly, in the first budget after 1979. Took some really tough decisions. Well, we're going to have, as a class, political class, all parties make some really tough decisions. And I want to see that green tax switch that we've been talking about, where you actually give people money in their pockets through raising tax allowances, And you get it back by taxing things that are bad, things that cause pollution, things that generate carbon. Now, that would be a major achievement. And I agree with Suzanne and I agree with um, George that actually a hung parliament in that situation would be a strength rather than a weakness because we're all in this together and we're all going to go down the swanee together if we're not careful. Thank Thank you.
1: Sandy, thank you. And thank you to all uh, the panel. Um, I want to open it up to you uh, very quickly, I'll just kind of a couple of things. Uh, John, you, you, you predicted that it would all be about the economy, uh, not about uh, Gordon Brown's uh, temper tantrums. Um, I don't remember you saying a prediction what you thought the election result might be.
4: Well, I did. I offered one right at the end. I, mean, I was trying to get through it because I could see you tutting on my time. Uh, I, mean, I, I think Greg has posed this as a 1979 or a, even a 1997 moment. I, I really profoundly don't think it is. Uh, I think, if anything, it's more like a 1992 uh, event, and you yourself uh, referred to the uh, surprising win of the Tories in 1992. Uh,
1: That's my prediction. I'm probably being rather dense, and it is early in the morning. (laughs) So are you predicting a Tory win or a Labour win?
4: No, I'm I'm predicting, obviously, because uh, I I want to see this. I want to see a Labour government elected, yes. No. But uh, but the the
1: boot will be on the other foot, obviously. So so it will be a surprise uh, Labour victory of 22? indeed. Okay, there we are. I just wanted to clarify that. Um, Greg Hans, I'm, ju- I'm also fascinated by your prediction that, that, that you think that turnout is going to be massively up in this election. Um, whereas all the evidence is that there seems to be enormous disenchantment among people
2: and a plague on all your houses, and your second houses.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes. um, well, uh, speaking as an inner London MP, I don't have a second home uh, to start with, but uh, But uh, I get your drift. No, I think turnout will be up because uh, if you look at the history of um, turnout uh, going back the last 40 years or so, the thing that it is most closely correlated to is the perceived likely closeness of the result. And everybody on this panel, we perhaps have slightly differing projections in terms of I think it's going to be a conservative win, others think it's going to be a hung parliament. But certainly there's very few people out there who think that it is already preordained and pre-decided. And I think most members of the British public in the last three elections in particular, rightly or wrongly, thought that it was pretty much pre-decided. That is why I think turnout will be the highest at this coming election that it has been since 1992. And and the other thing
1: you said was you thought you were in a very good place, and this is going to work to uh, David Cameron's advantage. Um, So you wouldn't rather be in Tony Blair's position in 1996-97, where he had an average poll rating of over
2: 50% and an average lead of about 25% in the polls? Well, uh, clearly, we we would rather be in that position. But what I'm saying is that a few years down the line, if people were to say um, David Cameron didn't really have a mandate, it was Brown and Labour who lost the election, uh, you were bound to win it, you could have done nothing else other than win it, then I think actually the tightening of the polls at the moment will strengthen David Cameron's position in the long run, say in three or four years' time, where you get... Uh, uh, the Conservative government might be going through a period of unpopularity, I think it will strengthen its position to be able to say actually it wasn't preordained that we would have won the 2010 election. It took a lot of hard work uh, and, uh, and actually show people the Sunday Times headline. You know, actually in a sort of Harry Truman moment, you remember the, true, the Jewy Defeats Truman uh, front page of the Chicago Tribune in 1948. Well maybe you don't but uh, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a famous bit of political history. And I think David Cameron will, if and I were him, show that newspaper and say it wasn't preordained that conservatives would win. We had to work very hard to do it.
1: Uh, and, Sandy, I, I just want to work on the hypothesis that uh, George and Susanna are correct and that it is a hung parliament. Um, could you envisage the circumstances in which you, the Liberal Democrats, uh, you as the MP for St Albans, are voting to go into a coalition with the Labour government that may have just been perceived to have lost that election, to give them a majority? Can you see the circumstances in which you would go into a coalition with the Conservatives?
6: Well, I mean, um, first of all, I think the Lib Dems are going to do better than people That's a predict. That's d- no, Sandy, I take that. that as a yeah. given. Because I think it's important about the size of the third parties. And, of course, the, one of the historic trends that there has been in this country is the decline in support... For the so-called two main parties yeah. and the growth and support for other parties, that's important in terms of moral authority. What Nick Clegg has said, and of course I am a mere foot soldier, so I, I have opinion. to agree. What Nick Clegg has said is that clearly whoever has got opinion. the most votes has the moral right to give, be given the first chance to form a government. Now, Who is whether that? we uh, sorry, go, sorry, I just want to stop you. Yeah. Who's got
1: the mo- most votes? Votes, yes. Is, so, I so, say in 19, 70, so in February seventy four it would have been Ted Heath?
6: I think it should have been, actually, yes. yes Even I mean, though Labour way. got more seats? Yes, because actually, if you have a system which is fundamentally unfair in the way that people are elected and numbers of seats, but this is a personal view, I think actually it would be only logical if what we say is that we believe in a proportional system of voting, which we do, then actually numbers of votes, but, 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 clearly... Um, it is, there's going to be an increase in the Conservative vote. We're all agreed in that, and an increase in Conservative seats. The question is how much. Now, whether there is formal coalition or instead a commitment that someone can form a government and that they have to be given the chance to form a government and develop a programme and deliver a programme, and there are various subtle ways around this. Timothy Garton-Ash in The Guardian today, I'm not sure I'm allowed to mention The Guardian in the hallowed halls of the FT, has a full-page article about the benefits of hung parliament and there are various tunes that he talks about and makes the point that actually in countries where they've had to deal with very severe fiscal problems some of the most successful have been precisely because they've been in that position of a minority um, um, government but formal coalition is one thing taking cabinet seats and another is actually letting people get their program through providing they're not putting forward totally egregious and illiberal policies.
1: Okay. Let me open it up to you.
2: Uh, Paul Abrahams. Uh, I'm head of corporate communications at Nomura. Uh, before I moved to the dark side of corporate communications, I was um, uh, for an investment bank. I was actually a journalist at the FT for 15 years. And my one bit of political reporting, because I was a second-half guy, was in 1992 on the night of the election on what played Cameroon was going to do in the event of a hung parliament it was two hundred words that ran in the first edition and disappeared <laughs> rather quickly. Um, I'm just quite interested about this, the, the, the alternative votes and the, the plague on all the houses, and just whether we're expecting an increase in minority um, um, groups like BNP or UKIP or things like that, and how much damage they might do to the uh, the established. Uh, the
1: established parties. Suzanne, I wonder whether you'd like to have a go at that, because you gave a general impression of disenchantment with (laughs) the uh, main parties.
5: Um, I think in some places we pretty much know where the BNP will will get their votes. I don't... Actually, I think there are some interesting independent candidates who will do well if they're known locally, but I think on the whole I don't think there's going to be an enormous swing to UKIP and the BNP, no, because I think people will perceive it... uh, as a, as a sort of up-against-the-wall choice um, in a general election.
2: Okay. Um, Great. Um, yes, I think there probably will be uh, an increase in, in others, for want of a better term, um, and the opinion polls actually pretty much, I think, right the way throughout the last four years have shown that. Um, however, I don't think we're going to see um, the level of success that other parties had in last year's European election, uh, partly or largely <laughs> thanks to our first-past-the-post um, electoral system, which I know before I incite Sandy, uh, is not the, the question before us today. Um, but I think actually a lot of people will realise the strength of our current electoral system. That although some of these votes uh, will go up uh, personally, I don't think they will win any seats.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree with that. I think the headbangers on both the far left and, and the far right
4: are not going to see any. We're not going to see any electoral gains. They're not going to have members of parliament. I think elected. Uh, I think if there is a wider concern that we should all have. I hope in this room however, about the growth of the fringe parties on the far left and the far right, uh, because they are, I think, they do pose quite a fundamental challenge to our democratic values, and I think we've got to watch that space very, very carefully indeed.
6: David Penhalligan, the late lamented David Penhalligan, when the Liberals and SDP merged, he said that we should be called the Social Democratic Alliance, because then you could stand Sandy Walkington, Sodom all, and everybody would vote for you. <laughs> um, but um, there is a need, I mean... There is no doubt that there is a mood on the doorstep of um, Sodomall, um, And this by-election I mentioned, the BNP put up a candidate in um, the leafy suburb of St. Alden's, London Coney, and really made an effort. Actually, it was quite helpful because you go around and bang on people's doors and say, do you want to live in an area with a BNP candidate? And people went eek and said no and came out to vote when otherwise they wouldn't. I don't see them winning seats... I think there is a serious issue about the disengagement and the fact that politicians are not talking the language that people understand, are not engaging with people. And I think there's a tremendous... I mean, I tell people to go and spoil their ballot paper when they say they won't vote. I say, look, go along, spoil the ballot paper, but just go and actually put something in the box and you have participated. But there is a real issue. And yes the voting turnout will go out a bit, go go up a bit. Not, I think, as much as Greg thinks. It will go up a bit because it's going to be a tight race. But historically, long term, we have a real problem about disengagement, and that's just as worrying as rise of fringe parties.
3: Yeah, just very quickly, I mean, I, I agree with John. I don't think UKIP or um, the BNP will win seats. I think it's quite possible the Greens could win a, a, their first parliamentary seat in, in Brighton. Um, and I think that just reflects a bit the, the fact that, I think local factors will play a much bigger role at this election than they have done previously, um, partly because of the weak, attractive proposition being made at, by parties at a national level. Um, and we've seen that a bit over, over recent years, the growth of the minority parties, but I think this is something that will play particularly into the hands of lib- incumbent Liberal Democrat MPs who, as we know, dig in. Once they're elected, they run extremely uh, effective and aggressive as well um, local campaigns. So I think, I think local factors... And the, the um, popularity of an incumbent local MP will be a, quite an important issue. We might see quite a few quirky local results.
7: Yeah, uh, gentleman there. Annika MacDonald. I'm co-author of uh, Big Potatoes, the London Manifesto for Innovation, uh, which will be launched shortly. Um, I am interested to note that although the economic situation seems very dire, a number of people have observed recently that uh, most times in the past two centuries, Britain's uh, gross national debt has been greater than it is today, up to... 200% in the post-Napoleonic war era after the Second World War 260% and so on so things aren't quite as bad as it seems but the, the way in which we have recovered from those situations is through uh, economic growth, productivity uh, new industries and so on um, to what extent is there going to be a discussion around real innovation, real industrial renewal uh, in this election and if there isn't going to be and that seems to be the only way forward you know, the idea of cuts, the idea of belt tightening and so on uh, is not only unrealistic, it's not a practical way forward for the British economy or, or internationally. To the extent it's not, why is there no discussion about that? And I don't just mean the Green Revolution okay. and so on. I mean something more profound than that. Uh, John Hutton. No, I think there will be a debate about that. That's precisely what I, I think you will see here. Well, I
4: think yeah, it's well, it, it started. Uh, I mean, the debate about, you know, the low-carbon technologies the low-carbon industries of the future, that's a debate that's happening. The Labour government's, I think, taken a, a very big decision recently under Peter Mandelson's leadership to, to switch the focus of its industrial policy to being more interventionist and supporting uh, those growth sectors of the future, and I think that's right. Uh, now, are we going to press all the buttons that everyone wants us to press? Almost certainly not, but I think you will see a debate between the parties about where the jobs of the future are going to come from. I think that's one of the things about our elections here. If you look at the precedents, our elections are generally about the future. It's, it's about what's going to happen next, not what might have happened in the past. And I think there will be, a, a very, I hope, a very lively debate about um, the jobs of the future. And I think that debate has started. I'm sorry you've missed it. Uh,
2: yes, I, I somewhat agree with John. I, I think it's been sort of crowded out, uh, as these things often do, by other of, uh, sort of more purely uh, political um, stories. Um, but one thing is for sure that our recovery uh, labor by um, saying that they're not going to deal with the deficit uh, the implication is that they think our recovery will be led uh, by public spending. And all of the recoveries in the past, the lessons of history, are that uh, economic recovery is led uh, by the private sector and growth in the private sector, which is why we have proposed a tax package, a fully funded tax package, um, to help business and has particularly help business in creating jobs. And the other most important thing that any government can do um, is to do everything that it possibly can to keep interest rates down. Uh, working uh, with the Independent Bank of England, but by creating an environment uh, where interest rates are likely to stay down, and that again is by dealing uh, with the deficit and by dealing with those high levels of debt uh, to prevent, as far um, as we can, government crowding the private sector out of the credit market.
1: But when I interviewed Cameron in Davos, he kept on saying it's not swinging cuts; it's just making a start. It's not mm-hmm. nothing, you know. It, it was as if you were
2: in full-scale retreat on the need to tackle the deficit radically. No, it's a question of getting uh, the balance right. Uh, and actually, when you look at what David has been saying, what George has been saying and other observers in our party, uh, it's always been a question about getting the balance right reducing public spending. There hasn't right been a change in reducing turn. Public spending after the growth figures were worse than forecast. No, I don't think there's been a change in turn at all, no. George?
3: Um, yeah, I, just, I think we will hear quite a lot about future growth and future jobs at the, at the election. I tend to agree with John that the debate's already started because it... It makes politicians sound forward-looking and more optimistic and um, uh, gives everyone a nice warm feeling because they talk about electric cars and windmills and low-carbon technology. And you've heard Peter Mandelson recently coming out as a convert to the uh, French model of government. Um, I don't think he quite used the word interventionism, but certainly um, the idea of the government playing a role in developing high-tech sectors. I think the only problem is is the mismatch between the rhetoric in this area and the amount of money available to government, any government um, to actually do anything about it. Sandy?
6: Um, well, I mean, first of all, we need a better balanced economy. There's no question about that. And that means less emphasis on London and the southeast. It's not that this is bad in London and the East, but we have to think about other parts of the country. And less emphasis on the financial sector. But then also, it's how we get weightless growth. And that doesn't mean just exporting carbon emissions and pollution and destruction of our globe to other countries, third-world countries. So actually, there's a tremendous opportunity, and it's very easy to sound sort of glib and just talking slogans, but there is a tremendous opportunity for a new industrial revolution harnessing UK innovation, UK R&D, UK universities. We've always been so bad at converting our ideas into actually products we can sell. And the whole issue about how we decarbonize the way that we live, both, first of all, power generation and then with decarbonised electricity for personal transport and home heating and home energy use. And if we can actually solve that one, we've gone a tremendously long way to actually meeting the objectives set if we are going to keep this planet actually safe to live on. Uh,
0: Susie Leather, Charity Commission. Um, what do you think might be the social cohesion impacts? of a 30% cut in public sector expenditure over however many years it's going to be. And given that it's pretty important that we do make very significant cuts, um, what are the mechanisms that you think or the steps you think we could put in place to try to maintain social cohesion?
1: Greg.
2: Um. Right. Uh, for a start, I, I, I don't recognise your um, 30% number um, in the... Uh, we we'll say there uh, was going to question. be a
1: Canadian-style uh, scale of cuts, which people have been looking at in public expenditure.
2: If there were to be um, that level of public uh, uh, spending reductions, which I'm not for a moment um, saying there necessarily would be, and a lot does depend on, on the timing, I don't think that we would be facing... Uh, uh, Greek style uh, um, um, huge uh, uh, trade union led uh, uh, protests uh, in the streets. Uh, I think uh, if public spending spending reductions are done intelligently um, over a period of time then I think actually uh, people would support that and I think the British public have a a general support for doing something about the deficit and getting our own house in order. Uh, I think if it's done intelligently and responsibly uh, over a period of time uh, then I think it would actually command support.
1: Suzanne, do you want to come on that? What do you think? Um, do you think
5: there'll be... I don't think um, either party have thought it through enough. Uh, I think if there's public sector wage freezes in the, in the way that people are talking about, there will be protest. I think there'll be protest from workers in the public sector, by users of the public sector. I don't believe the Tories, for one minute, have um, any idea of... Uh, how they're going to manage this this kind of talk about the third sector and voluntary organisations stepping in on frontline services seems still completely pie in the sky to me I mean we don't have enough for instance we don't have enough uh, drug rehab units are we going to have the Women's Institute come and deal with crack addicts I mean it's just, it's just a kind of um, pie in the sky thinking so I think this idea that it's going to be more smoothly ma- managed by the Tories or by Labour um, I don't think it is. I think that people actually do have to feel that this is being done for the good of everybody and they're not going to, like Osborne, you know, a millionaire uh, with his vast inheritance, handing out public sector pay, pay freezes at sort of eighteen, seventeen thousand pounds £17,000. This is not going to be popular. I can see it in, in what universe is that going to be popular?
1: John Hutton, can I just refine Susie's question a tiny bit for you? Is that, I mean, one the Susie part of the question about what I mean as, a, you know, as someone who'd been at DWP what would the impact be of 30% uh, a cut to that budget but a second point is do you think you, you have any culpability that you know, during the years of plenty money was sloshing around and it was not accompanied by reform so that you were getting more banks for your bucks uh,
4: well I would have preferred to have answered Susie's <laughs> question I think um. <laughs>
7: Yeah, well, well, look,
4: life, eh? yeah well, it's, well, look, John, <laughs> I, I personally, look, I, and I'm speaking in a personal capacity, a, a, a world of pain will descend upon me when I answer this question. You're right. We focus too much on the investment part, not enough on the reform part, in our approach to, to public service reform. Now, I would say it was right at the beginning that we addressed some of the capacity constraints. But the one lesson I have learned from running several large public sector departments, these problems are not going to be solved by chucking more money at them. They have to now. And this is why I think maybe I'm in a minority in this room or certainly in my party. This current economic downturn presents us with a massive opportunity to really get stuck in now to a new phase of public sector reform, public service reform, uh, where the focus, and this is where I disagree with Sandy, I, I personally think there is... Massive scope for greater efficiency in the way that we spend the 665 billions a year of public spending. Now, any well run business could, could take 10% of that. I don't think that would be a great. And we could do that without cutting frontline services. My real worry, John, is that we're going to go into this period after the election where we have to belt, belt tighten. We have to. Everyone knows that and we do what we've always done before, we just take 10% off you and 10% off you and 10% off you, and frontline services suffer. That would be the wrong thing to do, because I think the social cohesion damage would be high. The potential to screw this up if we have the wrong values that applies to this exercise are very, very high indeed. That's really why I'm, I will be voting Labour at the next election, because I do not trust the value base of the Conservative Party to deal, deal with this issue properly. There's too many ideologues, I'm afraid, who think this is a great opportunity simply to cut back the state. But so, just, there is great opportunities for social, uh, for greater efficiencies in the public sector. We should take it as an opportunity, not as a threat. I also disagree with Suzanne here because I actually think that we have got a still nineteenth century view of charities. We see of charities as providers of last resort. Well, they should be and can be, and often are. And when you talk about drug rehabs, I'd like the Women's Institute to do a bit of, do a bit of drug rehabilitation work, I think they do a bloody better job than the public sector has done. Uh, so I, I think we should think now of a different model of the charities in the third sector as providers of first resort. There is no problem, there should be no difficulty with that argument at all. I hope the, um, the Tory rhetoric, if the Tory's an administration, on an expanded role of the third sector is done properly and not simply as a sort of cost-shifting
6: exercise, because if this is providing public services on the cheap, it'll fail. Sandy? Um, yes, but of course I actually addressed the issue of social cohesion in my opening remarks because I think it is absolutely fundamental. And it's why, as I say, everybody has to be seen to share the pain. And the people that can afford the most will have to bear most of the pain. As, as that is, we're all going to be losers over the next ten years. It's going to be a tremendous slog. Frank Field was on the radio about that, I think, last week or two weeks ago. I certainly agree about not salami-slicing budgets I mean, we need some zero-based budgeting and some zero-based thinking, actually, frankly, because there's some things we could just simply do away with. I talked about the Department for Business, Enterprise, and Regulation Reform. Just go. Get rid of it. You know, um, John may disagree. uh, And there are things that might need to be transferred to other departments. And I also agree it's about values, and it's really important. And in the end, people out there have got to think that the people who are making decisions are on their side, and that's also about making them more local. Because I think people are much more ready to accept pain and cuts if they can see that they've actually been part of that decision process. And when it's some faceless, distant bureaucracy in the health service where the most junior person in charge of closing my local hospital is Andy Burnham, I mean, that's just daft. So somehow we've got to get things more local, get people feeling that they are involved. But I'm under no illusions. That's why I put it in my opening remarks. I think this is the biggest Challenge that the political class faces in the next 10 years is holding this country together.
3: Just to answer Susie's question directly, um, you listen to politicians, particularly Labour and Conservative politicians, and you get the view that 20% 20 cuts, which is what often people are talking about, those can be achieved without damaging social cohesion or public services. Now, given the fact that most government spending is devoted to what you might broadly call social cohesion aims, you know, whether it's health, spending, education, local government, public transport, subsidies, whatever it is, if you really think you can cut twenty percent out of that and not damage social cohesion, then there are one or two answers to that. Either it's rubbish. Or <coughs> secondly, if you take John's view, and I'm to be honest, more inclined to John's view, I think you can take a lot of money out of government spending in these areas and deliver the same outcomes for people at a much lower cost. And I think the public sector, I'm going to, start to sound a bit right wing here the public sector hasn't been subject to the same kind of disciplines over the last 13 years of Labour government simply because the money has just kept on pouring in that the private sector has been and uh, I'm a bit more optimistic than, uh, than some but I, I don't think it can be achieved without any damage to social cohesion. Right. I'm very mindful of time
1: now and we've got about 6 minutes left so what I would like to do is to take 2 or 3 questions and I want your questions to be really pithy and short right, gentlemen there
6: that's a challenge. Uh, Stephen Herring, BDO. The, um, a very quick question. We're asking for a much shorter-term prediction. If I think there was a consensus that there might be a situation that develops, it's certainly a risk or an opportunity that the Conservatives perhaps get more votes, but it doesn't translate into majority in Parliament. What I'd like to the panel's view on is the short-term prediction as, of whether the political class is sufficiently adept and fleet of foot to... Come to a conclusion about what the government's going to be, uh, which I think that the financial markets might okay. only give it literally a few days to do so. Right. Uh,
1: gentleman at the front here. Uh,
7: Edward States from Fleischmann Hillard. Uh, I wanted the panel to address uh, the television
2: debates, please. There's a lot of hot air already being uh, built up around these, um, and uh, perhaps people are being disingenuous in saying the impact
7: they may have on the election. Okay. Uh, the, the panel's view would be welcome,
2: particularly when a U.S. presidential debate um, comes into a campaign lasting two years okay. rather than six weeks.
1: Right. Question, got, got the question. Uh, someone at the back there has a hand up.
0: Uh, Obama used the internet effectively to really change the uh, engagement with voters in the U.S. I was just wondering if any of the parties are effectively using the internet to change the political um, support here.
1: Okay. Does everyone feel sated? Has everyone got their question in? Yeah, go on, there's one more.
6: Thanks, David Seymour, uh, former political editor of the Mirror Group and co-author of the book Why Vote Question Mark which is out today published by Biteback which <laughs> <laughs> like I like you
1: you've for, just driven a coach and horses uh,
6: through my instructions to keep it. Go on. Uh, but I hope Greg will read it if he thinks turnout is going is to go out. Um, I would like to, to ask the panel I mean there, there's been we've heard a sort of politician's um, answer on what is the election going to be about it's going to be about the economy I actually think that most voters can't see the difference between the parties on the economy and isn't the real thing that voters are going to decide on um, Is their attitude towards MPs and politics generally, and particularly towards the Conservative Party, having discounted Gordon Brown, as I think they have done, why isn't the Conservative Party really doing better? And isn't that the great danger that we've got at this election?
1: Okay, fantastic. Right. not in honour of Michael Foote, uh, who would I think struggle to give four answers to four different questions in the time available. I'm going to ask the, sound, the panel to be really soundbitey. So, uh, what's the government? Is the government going to be feet of foot? TV debate, internet and is there enough difference between the parties and you, can, you don't have to answer every single one uh, Greg Hans, and you can see this very briefly as you're summing up as well so 40 seconds
2: um, Yes, okay um, um, Stephen Herring's question on the political class coming to a decision quickly, uh, I, it's very very hard to tell, I mean the precedent, there's only one real precedent in February 1974 uh, which perhaps at that time it took as I recall quite a long time, uh, I think it would be rather quicker this time uh, with modern communications but nobody really knows um, the impact of the TV debates, I think, will be huge, um, and uh, I think will dominate uh, coverage uh, throughout the weeks, uh, those weeks of the election. Perhaps one slightly unfortunate side effect might be they crowd out, for example, local hustings and local candidates debates, uh, which I think would perhaps be unfortunate because I think, as George has said, I think a lot of these local races will be particularly interesting and particularly worthwhile at going along to. Um, Are we using the internet effectively? Certainly still way behind um, the United States. Uh, I think the Conservative Party is showing a lead here with websites like uh, Conservative Home um, and also other campaigning websites, um, but I think we've all got uh, really a long way to go. And whether the Conservatives should be doing better, we would love to be doing better. I think we have to understand the Conservative Party over the last 13 years that to be in the position we are in. uh, If you'd have said five years ago the Conservatives would be ahead by seven points and on 40 or so percent of the vote, um, then I think I would have taken that. Okay, very good. Uh, John? Uh, Well, I think the first question is a very important question.
4: I mean, we've got this fantastic tradition in the UK. We have an election on a Thursday and a new government on a Friday. Now, I hope that's what happens because the markets will expect that and there'll be a price to be paid and we'll all pay it if that doesn't happen. Uh, I think Greg is probably right. If there's no clear outcome of the election, it'll take a few days to, you know, for, for everything to fall into place. But I hope um, the politicians really set about that you know, with proper seriousness and they've got to be set about it in a proper patriotic sense. I mean, if no one comes out of the election on top, then people have got to get together and they've got to sort the problem out because, as I say, we'll have a shed load of trouble if we don't. TV debates, are they going to be important? <sighs> Who knows the answer to that question? Uh, I think they are going to be important. This will be my instinct. Uh, I think the um, importance of these debates will be a reflection of the fact that the country really has not come to a settled view yet about what what they want to come out of the election. I think a lot of people will follow that quite closely. I think here, when it comes to elections, no one's going to consciously vote for a hung parliament. You can't do that in a first-past-the-post system. So I don't think people are going to deliberately cast their votes in 650 constituencies as part of some connected network of like-minded people to to bring about a hung parliament if they if we have a hung parliament it'll just be because of the vagaries of our system but i i think i think what we've we've absolutely got to focus on uh, is the importance of, of getting a, a proper and effective government in place. Internet, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what my party's doing on that. I hope they're doing something. Uh, they... <laughs> but uh, I haven't had a Twitter message yet. And um, I think David's point, David, look, I'll buy the book. Sure, it will be absolutely fascinating. Uh, there will only be a few by mine, which is coming out next month. Uh, but, uh, but I think, uh, why aren't the Tories doing better? Well, that is the $64,000 question, and I've present, tried to present an answer to that because they don't really know what they stand for.
6: Right. Okay. Excellent, Sandy. Really, really brief, please. Um, Is the political class nimble enough? I worry at Westminster. Of course, at local government level, huge experience of working in coalition because you've got to and working in partnership. Someone like Vince Cable, I think, is going to be an incredibly key deal maker um, if that happens. And the respect in which he is held, I mean, extraordinarily important. All both other parties give their eye teeth to have him. Uh, We'll just have to see. I'm not confident. TV debates, for Lib Dems, the sheer fact that Nick Clegg is there and gives him in marketing speak parity of esteem, I mean is hugely important and I think that he is the big gainer from these debates happening. I think actually they're leading to more hustings at local level. People have suddenly worked out you can have these things, why don't we do them locally? I'm getting lots of invitations for hustings, arguably too many. Internet, I think over exaggerated in terms of talking to voters. In the end, you, you talk to Howard Dean who ran uh, Barack Obama's campaign and he will say what won it for Barack Obama was knocking on doors. Physically going out and meeting people, what the internet does is allow you to mobilise your supporters to actually say, go to X corner. And certainly for me as a parliamentary candidate, if I'm elected, it'll be 30 years since I was first selected for St Albans. Mm -hmm. I thought it in 83 and 87, um, rather bizarrely. And the big dramatic change is the internet and mobile. Last issue, David Seymour's, people are disgusted by the behaviour of MPs. There's no doubt about it. Disgusted. So, yes, I think that is going to be trust in politics and disgust at what them up there and how they have behaved. That is going to be very, very profound.
1: Sandy, thank you very much. Quick final word to Susan. Uh,
5: uh, Very very quick. Um, I'd like the politicians to stand up to the city, not bow down to pressure, uh, and get their act together. The internet, no. Political parties are dreadful. uh, (laughs) Way behind the average 15-year-old. The TV debates, three men... With another three men, it's not setting. It's not going to set the world on fire.
1: Thank you. Brilliantly <laughs>
3: succinct. Uh, um, well, I, I time's short. Just to answer the first question: What happens you know, under our strange system, where if the Tories have more votes and Labour win more seats in the Commons, which is actually a, quite a plausible outcome? I think there are some scenarios where if Labour have three or four um, percent fewer percent fewer votes than the Tories, they can have more seats. What the Lib Dems have said in those circumstances is, it would become clear who had won the election. Now, what does that mean? Um, I, I think it means that what they mean is that Gordon Brown will have been defeated, and that they would seek to work with David Cameron, who would have won the biggest mandate in terms of votes rather than necessarily seats. I think that's what it means.
1: Um, thank you all very much. Thank you all very much indeed to uh, my panel. We've been looking very much at future predictions. I just want to end with a past prediction and ask John Hutton, was Gordon Brown a f***ing disaster? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, is that the time? LAUGHTER <laughs> 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 I didn't think we'd get much further than that All of you, thank you very so much Julia
0: Thank you very much That was a really good way to start the day I would like you to thank wonderful Chair John Sopel and the panel Greg Hands, George Parker, Suzanne Moore John Hutton, Sandy Walkington Have a good day